This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. In this episode, I'm on the road in Napa Valley. And today I have the pleasure of being at Sullivan Rutherford Estate with winemaker Jeff Cole. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. This is a this is awesome. It's a beautiful piece of property, Scott. Well, yeah, thank you, uh, thank you for coming. Uh, we're, we're happy to have you here today. And yeah, I mean, you came on a beautiful day. There's really no no clouds in the sky, and just... yeah, who who knew at the end of January? <laughs> right. This is just a pitch perfect day. Yeah. I've never been here. I've heard about Sullivan, driven by it probably a dozen times, and really am very grateful for the invitation because I have to say. Driving up to the winery was just a beautiful experience. The grounds are absolutely gorgeous. Of course, your hospitality room is is stunning. But, you know, that's only half the story, right? Right. Because it's really what's in the bottle, I think, that that matters. And I understand that you are here as the head winemaker. You've kind of got a pretty interesting background yourself. Sure. Tell me about your your background. You were at Schramsberg originally? Yeah, so my first, you know, crack, if you will, uh, in, in the wine industry was, was at Schramsberg Vineyard, which is, you may know, is a sparkling wine house up yep. in uh, Calistoga, um, actually in the Diamond Mountain AVA. Before I even got there, I actually, I grew up here, here in the valley. I'm a local kid. Local boy. A local boy. Grew up in Yonville, which is about five miles south of where we're sitting right now, you know. Uh, I grew up amongst the vines, but I wasn't necessarily growing up within the industry. Uh, my family, you know, they didn't take part uh, in, in, in the wine industry, so I didn't really have too much experience, you know, or exposure. Of course, I, I had friends growing up with their their families um, had roles within the industry, and so it was vaguely familiar, if if I were to say anything. <laughs> you you had a pretty good understanding. No, yeah, I, mean, I, remember, I remember going out, one of my good friends growing up, neighbors, his dad is a vineyard manager, and so I, I remember going out with my friend and his father out to the various vineyards, you know, throughout the Napa Valley and just kind of hanging out and kicking dirt clods and throwing rocks and right. just, you know, kind of being amongst the vines, if you will. But, I mean, that was pretty much the, the extent of it. So after I graduated, I waited high school. I went down south to San Luis Obispo and go Mustangs, go Mustangs, baby. And I was actually enrolled as a recreation administration major. And, <laughs> and at the time, my goal I didn't even was, know they had that major. Yeah, there. I was coming back. You know, my goal is after graduation, I'm coming back to Yonville and I'm taking over the the rec department okay. uh, for for the town. And so. I was taking my classes. I was on the, the four-year track, you know, at Cal Poly. It's almost six years. So I yeah, was I was right. cruising right through it. Um, and at the time, they had a few classes related to, to viticulture and to wine tasting and a, a few enology classes. But it wasn't really a, a major that it's something you can get a degree in. It's just something to dabble. Okay. And so I ended up picking up a few classes, liking it. I was still on track to graduate as a recreationist administration major, um, and really, I think it was like the quarter, or maybe the quarter, two quarters before I was supposed to graduate, um, the faculty basically put it out there that anybody doing the courses for the minor could roll into a major that they had just developed. No red tape, 
because I don't know if you're familiar, but to change majors or to add something to Cal Poly is a lot of red it tape. It is. I, I am familiar. Okay. I am the very proud father okay. of an alumni of uh, Cal Poly Slow, very he, nice. uh, Mecky, yeah. and he made it through in four years. <laughs> so, Brian, if you're listening, Daddy, Daddy loves amazing. you. Thank you. That's amazing. Focus. <laughs> yeah, that's you're right. Very Focus. Focused. That's right. Um, so, yeah, very hard to... Change majors at Cal Poly. Once you're in, you're on a track. That's it. And yeah. so um, I was like, uh, this is kind of a no-brainer. I mean, I love the courses. It, it was very um, challenging but in- interesting at the same time. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to double major. Uh, added two more years to my college experience there. But I think ultimately that's, you know, I gained a passion for it. And that's ultimately what I wanted to do as a career. I spent while going to school, I kind of dabbled in terms of working in the tasting rooms and trying to get familiar with, with, with the industry as a whole. So my first job was at Leticia, which is in Rio oh, Grande, sure. yeah. which was formerly Maison Dute, so it was a sparkling wine house. Yeah. Um, but by the time I got there, they were doing the sparkling, but more... Yeah, they're still the, doing sparkling. Yeah, yeah. yeah but more in the, the Chardonnay Pinot Noir production. And then after that, I spent... Almost two years at a, a small producer in Paso Robles uh, called Windward Vineyards. Oh, yeah. I know Windward. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mark and Maggie uh, Goldberg, the uh, little passion project of theirs. Yeah. And Punoir and Paso, you know, it's, that was th- weird. doesn't sound like it goes <laughs> hand in hand. But they, they found a little niche. And, you know, Mark was definitely very passionate about what he did and the fact that it was small. So I kind of transitioned. I was still doing some of the hospitality jobs, but also during harvest. For the two years that I was there, you know, I was out there with Mark, the owner, and, you know, shoulder to shoulder, processing, punching down. So that was really my first experience. How many acres, just out of curiosity, do you remember? I think he has 15 acres. Of Pinot. Of Pinot. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So, pretty amazing. Pinot and Paso. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that? A pioneer. <laughs> a pioneer of Pinot and Paso. Yeah. Not something you really hear that alliteration often. Not very often. And once I graduated... As much as I love that area, to me, you know, Napa was, well, it was... Well, home. It was home, and definitely, let's say a little, but more established from, a, not only from, from a prestige, but, you know, the best winemakers in the world were in Napa making wine. So I felt like, A, I get to go home, but B, you know, to surround myself with some, some amazing talent. Like, I felt like I needed to get, get back to Napa. Um, and so, yeah, at the end of 2006, I took a job in the cellar. At Schramsberg Vineyards, so again, the sparkling house, uh, which is also a Cabernet house. So they do have 45 acres of Bordeaux, primarily Cabernet, planted which, which on the property. I always forget. Yeah. I have it, to say, I, I always assume Schramsberg, or I associate Schramsberg with sparkling. Right. And I always forget that they have, uh, you know. The, still a wine program. Exactly. And they do. It's still red wine program. Exactly. And, you know, that, you know, since... I started there, and since I've left, has has grown dramatically. So that they're doing a really good job. How long were you at Schramsberg? A total, almost seven years. Okay. So I started off again in the cellar, worked my way up into the lab, and then the last three years that I was there, I was uh, the the assistant winemaker. And I heard that you caught the attention of somebody at Sullivan because how meticulous you are in the cellar. Absolutely, and I think looking back on it. I would recommend any aspiring winemaker to do a few years in a sparkling wine house. Um, sparkling wine is a completely different animal than, than producing you know, still, any still wine. There really is no room for air. Uh, it's, you have to be very meticulous. You have to be very detail-oriented, uh, attention to detail. You know, 
Super clean. Super clean, um, sparkling base wines generally don't go through a secondary or malolactic fermentation, um, so the wines are unstable. Um, and so the entire process, you have to ensure there's no cross-contamination, that, that you don't accidentally infect the wine. Um, even when you go to bottle, the wines do get sterile filtered, but you're adding uh, a sugar base in for the, dos- for the dosage, for the secondary fermentation. You're actually building a live yeast culture. Um, so if right. you infect right. the yeast culture, then you're infecting right. everything down the line from that. Right. Um, and so it, it really, from a, a sanitation, from a, you know, a winery maintenance and cleanliness perspective, it taught me a lot. And just in general, the health of the wine is the most important thing. Uh, so I think that translates. And, and plus, for the red wine making, uh, for the, you know, the Cabernets and the Merlots and the Veritas that we produce... You know, sparkling wine is very high acid, low pH. It's right. it's very you know it's a, it's a very different sensation on the palate. And so when we're finishing those wines, you know, disgorging and adding the corks and everything, the dosage is very important because you're bringing balance to the wine. Right. And so you're very cognizant of you know how much dosage you're adding relative to how much acid you have, and you're really trying to find that that balance and while maintaining the freshness and i think that translates at least stylistically to what i do um with the cabernets and the merlots that i produce because uh, i'm aware of that and for me balance balance is key i went to when i was in champagne several years ago one of the winemakers at one of the well, very well-known house in champagne said you have to in champagne you have to make wine three times yeah Absolutely. Yeah. And now That's I get nice. it. Now I understand what he was talking about, <laughs> just listening to you. Right. You really have to make wine three different times. And, and probably one of the most important is the dosage. The dosage is key because that's where you really bring the wine together and, and you really you know, fine-tune it, if you will. So 2013, you are then recruited or you... They, somebody comes knocking and yeah. there's a new opportunity that's presented to you. Yeah, I'm sure you're aware with, with any industry, but definitely the, the Napa Valley is pretty tight-knit, right. small. You know, If you don't know somebody, you know somebody, somebody knows, that knows somebody, them, yeah, right? Yeah. So it just kind of goes like that. And so, yeah, I had kind of two, I guess, two reasons or two people why or introduced me to, to, to Sullivan and an opportunity here. And one of them was uh, the, the wine club manager at the time who actually I worked with at Tronsburg. So there was a connection there. But then secondarily, um, a gentleman named Scott McLeod, mm-hmm. uh, formerly of Englenook, yep. the director of winemaking there. He actually was in charge at the time of vineyard in Marin County, so the Skywalker Vineyard, which is George Lucas's property. Mm-hmm. So he was in charge of George Lucas's, you know, Pinot Chardonnay project. But then it was also selling fruit. And at Schramsburg, we were buying fruit from Scott off the Skywalker property. Mm-hmm. And so we had met and passed in a few times at Schramsburg, but you know, not really, you know, enough to to cultivate any kind of, of relationship. But we knew each other. And so in 2013, Sullivan was going through a little bit of a transitional period in terms of which family member was was you know, taking control. And uh, Scott McLeod is the brother-in-law to Ross Sullivan, who is one of the the, okay. the five siblings here. Their, their wives are sisters. And so through okay. marriage, he's a brother-in-law. Okay. 
And so through this transitional period, he was kind of put in charge of ensuring that production kind of maintained and that, that he got the right person to come in and kind of take charge and take ownership of wine production. And like I said, we met a few times through Schronsberg and he understood that, you know, you work seven years primarily doing sparkling wine. There's, there's, you, you got to cut from a different cloth because again, sparkling wine is, is very meticulous. You know, you got to have a passion for it to, to do it for, you know, an extensive amount of time. And so I think he realized just kind of the, what I had in me to, in order to be at Schronsberg for, for that amount of time. And, that I was still young enough to learn and to evolve and to, you know, I was open to new you ideas. Yeah, you weren't set in your ways yet. <laughs> exactly. And so I think it kind still of... Still malleable. <laughs> pretty much. And, you know, he, you know, one of his questions was, stylistically, what kind of wine do you like or would you like to make? And he and I were, were pretty in tune. So that helps too, right? Yeah. Like he, you know... He sees it going one direction and I see it going another. And then, you know, maybe I'm not here at, here at Sullivan. So... We were in tune in terms stylistically what kind of Cabernet we wanted to produce. I think he understood my background and how that would apply here. And uh, and that was 2015, right? 2000, so uh, July 2013. 13. So I came on right before the 13 right. vintage. But in 15, you then took over the whole winemaking operation? Yeah, so 15 was my first kind of vine to bottle. Okay. Um, so again, 2013, I came on right for that vintage. Scott and I collaborated in the 13s we, we did together. The 14s was when he was starting to phase out. And that was kind of the, the deal from the beginning was, you know, we want to get you in, get everything set up, and then I'm going to start fading out, and this is really going to be your project. So 14, he was around a little bit, and I would say... 14 is say, mostly influenced by me with a little checks and balances by him, but then 15 truly was Vine to Bottle. That's when you started. Yeah. And then I understand that there had has recently been actually a change of ownership that the Sullivan family has recently sold the Rutherford estate. Right. Take me through that a little bit. Yeah, so yeah, the, the Sullivans... Well, have been on this property since 1978. It was, you know, their, their, their father, wow, Jim amazing. Sullivan, is who, who, you know, brought the family from L.A. He was a graphic designer at the time in the late 60s and got into wine and was making wine in his garage. Just as you, that story is, you know, for the early, you know, 70s, late 60s, that's kind of the, uh-huh. how people got started. You know, they, they were making wine in the garage, said, you know what, we're going to Napa, uproot the family and... You know, even at Schramsberg, the Davies family was kind of in that same boat. Totally different profession, had a passion for wine, moved to the Valley, and they've been here ever since. Yeah, there was a lot of that going on in the 60s and 70s, and a a lot of it really attributed to Robert Mondavi, who, you know, after the split from Charles Krug, really kind of started to put Napa Valley on the map, right? You know, and then, of course, we had the tasting of... Uh, the Judgment of Paris, right. which helped. So that whole era yeah. of the late 60s uh, all the way through the late 70s was really kind of a cool time where people could pull up stakes right. and move to Napa and you know say, listen, we're going to give it a shot. And I'm amazed at the, the wonderful result of those early pioneers. And those, you know, and those early pioneers, I mean, it was nothing but a passion project. Right. Right. They didn't have a background and, you know, a technical background in winemaking. Right. They just loved like wine. They were making it in their garage. Maybe a few of them had attended a, well, there was no online at the time. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe some kind of uh, course at Davis. Sure. But nobody was really actually getting degrees in enology right. uh, from Davis on a regular basis right. and, yeah. and coming up to Napa. It was a, a, a brave new world, as I would say. Absolutely. And it was... Right. So know. he comes up and 
In the 70s, 78 starts. Yeah, so the 78th state. The soul, where we're sitting today, 78 is when they broke around on, on their family home and then the production facility. And so, yeah, they, the family, you know, he passed away in, in the mid 2000s and his wife Joanne kind of continued the, the operation, mm-hmm. uh, working with um, their two sons, Ross Sullivan and Sean Sullivan. And they've kind of, over the years, took turns you know, leading this operation. Um, and then by about the time I came on board, um, I think the family was starting to phase out a little bit. They were, you know, and really the family were, were more artists and kind of artistically trained, technically trained, actually. Um, and they, they had other projects going on. And, you know, kind of the wine business for them was, was start, starting to become a secondary thing. And so... A couple of years ago, actually, January 2018 is when Juan Pablo and his uncle Pedro and a small investment group had an opportunity or, or a chance meeting with the Sullivans, and um, that's when you know kind of the change of ownership happened. Which for me at the time was you know change of ownership. What does that mean, right? Like what what does that mean for mean for me? I right, yeah. spent the, at that time the last four almost five years. You know, developing the vineyards, developing the wine, uh, trying to create a wine that is best representative of this property. And, you know, I've got, you know, blood, sweat and tears, if you will, into this project and a new ownership. You know, it was a little bit scary at the time, but I met with JP, talked for a long time about, you know, just kind of our, our values, you know, personally, our values within the industry, like where we see ourselves and, and clicked instantly, like aligned. I mean, once we had that conversation and JP assured me that, you know, this is, this is a passion project, but we're going to treat it as if we're business. We want this to be successful. Right. And JP, by the way, is Juan Pablo. Juan Pablo. Just, okay. Yep. Right. And so he assured me that he was going to put together a team, you know, surrounding me on production, but also from a business perspective that was going to more or less take this brand to the next level, really put it into the, the, the forefront of the industry. Um, and so, I mean, like I said, we clicked instantly. He reassured me that they wanted me as their winemaker moving forward. They, you know, my wines were, you know, a big reason why they decided to purchase this property. Huh, that's um, a compliment. Yeah. I mean, they really had been looking, he says three, I'd probably say longer, but at least three years doing their due diligence mm-hmm. here in the Napa Valley specifically. Um, it said that they've visited over 130 different wineries, really trying to figure out, you know, what worked for them stylistically, you know, f- from a location perspective. And so when this property came became available, they tasted the wines, they, they went out and looked at the terroir and saw the potential you know, in the right. vineyard on the site. I mean, it was almost a no-brainer. So they jumped on. But it, you have to admit, it's pretty unusual for a winemaker to stay on over the transition of uh, ownership. So you must see something in them. I oh. mean, I get that they saw something in you. Yeah. And your wines speak for you, but you probably saw something in them. Tell me what are the, some of the changes that uh, you're excited about that are going on here now with the new ownership. Yeah. It, a lot of things, uh, as we mentioned, bringing the, the right people on board. Right. So soon after they finalized the deal to, to purchase the property, they did a search and brought on Joshua Lowell, who's our general manager, uh, formerly of Futo in Oakville. Mm-hmm. He was there and built that brand and that facility, actually, and was there for 10 years. And then after Futo, he was at Aubert, which is a Pinot sure. Chardonnay producer up in Calistoga, working with Mark Aubert, and really helped develop that winery. So, And then he came here. And so just a ton of experience, not only from building a winery, selling a winery. He's very technical in terms of the vineyards. 
So it's always nice to have somebody that I can talk to (laughs) because, you know, up until that point, most of the people working here didn't really understand production of the vineyard. So I was really on my own. So to have Joshua come on board, who has a, a very knowledgeable view of not only the production, but the vineyards was, was good for me. I mean, it gave me an opportunity to brainstorm and bounce ideas off and really, you know, try to figure out what we're doing as this quote unquote new brand. And then Obviously, the, the sales and marketing team hired a, an estate director, Lisa Barker Mullins, you know, hiring the taste room staff team. We, we've brought in some outside sales, so beyond the DTC, but out into the direct to consumer. Direct to consumer. You and I can speak right. like that, but you know, I want I want to make sure people listening to the podcast when we talk in acronyms you know, that they they fully understand. Right, understandable. And so, yeah, it's just bringing the right group on. Uh, we spent about two years now, and we're kind of filling those last gaps. Uh, so for me, that's exciting. That now we've got a strong team that's really going to propel this brand. But more than the team, you also they're also making major investments in the property itself, right? I just, we were talking earlier about yeah. how you're replanting uh, some serious acreage yeah. out, out uh, in the vineyards and some of the equipment you've been, uh, you're replacing some of your tanks, you're selling off some of your older right. barrels, uh, you're getting smaller lot, smaller capacity uh, fermentation tanks so that you can do some really cool things with smaller lots. Um, there seems to be a lot uh, going into the infrastructure here as well. Absolutely, and that's another exciting aspect of it. Is is you know not only are we, we have a full understanding of what this property is now, and we have brought on a, I think one of the best, if not the best, vineyard management teams here in the Napa Valley. Um, Mike Wolf, maybe you've heard oh, sure, of him. Oh sure, yeah. yeah. Mike Wolf. Um, wow. Yeah. And his team uh, came on about a year and a half ago, okay. and so we're kind of under their guidance, you know, from a from a vineyard and viticultural perspective. And so we've really done a lot of work out in the vineyard to you know digging pits, really understanding the soil, and understanding you know what we think would be best suited for those specific sites to maximize the quality or to enhance the quality across the entire property. And so to to your point earlier. We've ripped out in the last year um, a little over eight acres of older vines, Cabernet vines, and we're replanting those blocks. That's a major investment. I don't know if people understand how long it takes new vines to get up and running before they produce mature fruit. But that's a how many acres under management uh, under vine do you have here now? Well, less. I mean. If the entire vineyard was planted, we would have a little over 21 acres. And you've ripped out eight eight acres of of the 21. Of some, yeah. That's a pretty major major deal. It's kind of scary, for sure. But we definitely have the long game in mind and we want to make sure what we do now is set up in such a way that, you know, minimizes failure, if you will. We want to make sure that we have the best fruit year in and year out. And in order to do that, we, we need to do a, we need to do a, a reevaluation of what was planted on the property. And we felt that there were a couple of blocks, even though they were phenomenal blocks that could be done better and produce even higher quality fruit. And so that's, that's what we've done here on the estate. Um, last year we purchased 
a property south of us down off uh, Soda Canyon Road, mm-hmm. kind of north Napa, but south in the, kind of the Napa Valley wine growing area. I don't know. Is that Coombsville or near Coombsville? Yeah, yeah. so towards the Coombsville direction, there's no set AVA okay. out there. So yeah. still technically the Napa Valley AVA. And AVA and stands for? American Viticultural Appalachian. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Jeff. No, it's okay. You know, this is... I'm talking like this all day, so sometimes it's hard to <laughs> hard to break character, right? And so we purchased a, a 12 acre property out there that was never planted to grapes. It was just fallow pasture land, but but wow. a, a piece of property that is amongst some some pretty high end producers. Uh, we've got Silver Oak around us. We've got Roy's States yeah. around us, and so we're hoping to get at nine acres uh, under vine there. And this is major. I mean, this is a major investment. It's awesome. In, <laughs> in long, yeah. long term. I mean, you know, we're talking three or four years before that fruit comes online. And yeah. probably another three or four years before you really want to use it. Absolutely. Uh, in your program. So, but, you we, but we feel, again, that those investments are, are needed, are required to, to go to where we want to go. So we're, we're willing to do it. And again, that's one of the exciting things. When I first met with Juan Pablo and, and his investment group, they're all in. And not to, you know, they want to ensure that you know, everybody that works you know, for this company has the tools you know, that they need in order to be successful. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that, it's, it's a lot going on right now. It's an exciting time. There's a little bit of patience that's involved because, like you said, it takes yeah. a few years to get up and going, but that's okay. So you've, you've made it through the transition of ownership yeah. that, who have now heavily invested in staff, in getting the right people in the right places, and they have also invested in the vineyard and the property themselves. I understand you're even going to be breaking ground on a new uh, facility here on site. Yep. And by the way, the facilities here right now are beautiful. Anybody listening, and you're in Napa Valley... Yeah. Please, it's literally right off Highway 29, the major cut through uh, in the valley. Got to visit this place. It's absolutely stunningly beautiful, and and the people are even nice. <laughs> so you have, so you have the equipment, you have the facilities, you have the the fruit and the vineyard. Right. Tell me about your winemaking philosophy. What are you going to do now? You have all the toys, yeah. and you you tell me about what you're going to do. Yeah, there's kind of three things. You know, when I think about making wine and what a wine is um, that I kind of, I don't know if I live by, but I definitely have in mind when I'm creating it. And one, the wine has to be distinctive. You know, it ha- there has to be something about it that stands out, that kind of sets itself apart from other wines. And I think that the distinction comes from the terroir, right? It comes from the vineyard, it comes from the place. And so being able to really extract that out, you know, not only, you know, from grape growing, but through, you know, the processing and production um, techniques that we use here to, to maximize what that fruit has. Um, so for me, the wine has to be distinctive. It has to be balanced. Absolutely. Coming back to the a lot of people forget about sparkling that. wine background, which I think helps me because, you know, I'm cognizant of, of acidity. I'm cognizant of of tannin, you know, I also want, you know, weight and viscosity and length, but it's all about knitting the, those, those aspects to, together. Yeah. And ultimately, if I do that correctly, then, then the wine's pleasurable. The wine is, is delicious. It's, it's something that you want to have multiple glasses of that, you know, when you're not having it, you're thinking about it, you know, it just, there needs to be a pleasurable factor to the wine and an enjoyable factor. And so those kind of three things 
or what I try to achieve. Well, I'm pretty excited because we have two open bottles here. We and, do. And there is that t- it's now the time in the podcast where yeah. we get to try the wine. Perfect. Yes. So we've now opened the bottles. <laughs> and uh, we have two beautiful. I mean, I, I got to tell you, what's wafting out of these glasses right now, yeah. I'm amazed. I haven't been drinking them during the interview. <laughs> and I, they really, are tempting. I really wanted to. So tell me about the first wine we're going to try. So sure. The first wine is a Merlot. Okay. Um, it is under the brand James O'Neill. So the James O'Neill um, is, is, is our, if you will, reserve tier. So the James okay. O'Neill is our best effort in that particular vintage. And so... Beautiful. Uh, um, it's the James O'Neill Merlot. This is their 2015 vintage. A little, little background on the wine. So we replanted all of our Merlot on the estate back in 2012. So right before I got here. So in 2015, as you can imagine, the vines were still relatively young. There was a crop, but the crop again was young and maybe not to the quality that we would consider James O'Neill. So we, for the last few years, have had to outsource our fruit for this program. Okay. And so we source from a vineyard up in St. Helena. It's a vineyard. That's where this fruit comes from for right, the Merlot. Right. Okay. Off, off of Pope street. I don't know how familiar yep. your viewers okay. are with St. Helena, but Pope street. Um, there's a, a, a beautiful little vineyard on the Valley floor that, cause the Napa river is right next to it. So at one point the river, I think flow through there. Cause there's just, you know, round um, pebbles and gravel and just kind of that, you know, Creek and river gravel that just is everywhere. So very well drained, um, very small clusters, very concentrated. In my opinion, probably Cabernet soil, but the Merlots are phenomenal. So don't do anything because we're making right. great wines out of it. <laughs> so if I'm going out 29 towards Calistoga, I would make a right on Pope Road? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. Just as you yeah. get in, in, into St. Helena, Pope Street, Pope Street right. heads out to, to the trail. Um, the old, the old, the Napa Valley College Extension is sure. literally right across the street from this vineyard. Um, and this is 95% Merlot, 5% Cabernet. And obviously the Cabernet comes from uh, the estate here. Yeah. And I got to tell you, the, um, when you were talking about balance before, mm-hmm. well, this wine's really got it in, in uh, full numbers here. It's, it's interesting, you know, when you, when you smell it, at least when I smell it and the, the aromas are coming out, Definitely not Cabernet, which is great because, mm-hmm. you know, you. I really don't get enough single varietal Merlot these days. It's, for me, I find, I don't know why I don't see more of it. And so whenever I smell it and taste it, I'm like, oh, right, that's what Merlot's, I forgot what Merlot tastes like. And I'm really happy to see that you're doing this program because uh, I miss Merlot. Well, Scott, to be honest, we do too. And, you know, we're, we're amongst... You know, the best Cabernet producers, you know, are arguably in, in the world, and Cabernet is planted widely here in the Napa Valley. Um, but we, I think we used here at Sullivan, this Merlot is kind of inspiration, and we realized that we kind of know what we're doing in, in, in the Merlot category, and high-end Merlot category, and so we're head, hedging our bets a little bit. And so those eight acres that we talked about previously that we're replanting on the property, yep. half of those acres are going to Merlot. Oh, good. So good. I'm glad to hear that. Our, you know, our, our goal in the future is to produce a larger quantity of this style of Merlot and really you know, try to bring the essence of Merlot and bring the, just that, the goodwill factor of Merlot back to the forefront. Do you think of those four acres you're replanting to Merlot, will those be part of your blending program or do you envision a single bottle program or is it just going to depend vintage to vintage Uh, obviously vintage to vintage but our plan is that it will be a standalone merlot 
obviously we would want to use it in some blending capacity for some of our other projects but the goal for us is to produce you know a thousand cases of the best merlot in the napa valley and we think that this is if not the best merlot in, in the napa valley and so mm-hmm. that is our goal well don't give up the contract on this fruit <laughs> no no <laughs> absolutely not it's, it's really good all right, tell me about the, the next wine that we have. So staying with our kind of reserve tier James O'Neill theme, this is our, our Cabernet version. So 2015 James O'Neill Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, this is 100% Cabernet. It's from the, the Rutherford Estate where we're at right now. It comes from our last remaining old block of, of Cabernet, which is right out in front of uh, the how, case. How old is old? Uh, it was planted in 98. Right. So... I guess it's all relative, yeah. but for us, it's it's the oldest block remaining. But it is the best block on, on the property. It's a block that naturally yields two tons to the acre. So it really is, we're on the valley floor, but it acts as if it were on the mountainside somewhere. Two tons per acre? Two tons to the acre. All right, for people who don't understand tons per acre, that's incredibly low. Incredibly low and incredibly low for the valley floor. Right. I mean, normally you're seeing probably four to five, five and a half tons per acre on the floor. Right. You know, to, to get half of that, wow, that's, that, you're really concentrating a lot of flavor into that fruit. It's, it's insane. Um, small clusters, super small berries, super concentrated. For me, it's from a production standpoint, from a fermentation standpoint, it's one of those wines that if... You're not watching it carefully. It can get out of control. Yeah. Um, and so it's constantly walking that fine line of, of extraction, but not over-extraction, right? But once the wines are made and aged and bottled and, and had a time to kind of meld and resolve itself a little bit, it's just phenomenal. So this, I mean, it's 2015. Correct. Sullivan, the James O'Neill, which is your reserve. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, uh, this wine, when, when you smell it, it immediately, in a, if I were in a blind tasting... That's Napa Cabernet. You're, it's just, you're getting a lot of that really great dark fruit, a little dark bit of the tomato leaf, mm-hmm. you know, that you kind of expect out of the, the Cabernet that's singing in there. And then same again in the mouth, not overripe, which I, no. I love because I find that sometimes Napa Valley fruit can get a little sure. on the ripe side and um, you kind of lose a little bit of that herbaceousness that tames the wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's pitch perfect in here. I'm just that tiny, tiny little bit of green leaves yeah. is, is just, I, dare I say, refreshing. I don't want <laughs> to use that term and have people say, Cabernet is refreshing. No, no. But in it gives lift. Lift. It gives, it gives the fruit a, a bit of lift here in this. And again, great balance. Yeah. And I think what you just described is, I think embodies this estate as a whole. It's the darker fruits. It's the more savory characteristics. You get all that... That, that, that leafy characteristic, that yeah. tobacco, the minerality. I mean, that is the distinctive factor I was, I was talking about earlier when I, you know, I want this wine to truly be a representation of where we're at. And I think this wine specifically embodies that. Yeah, and, and a lot of that comes from the fruit, but the balance comes from you. Right, yes. And I will say that and I love the fact that you used the B word mm-hmm. when you were describing your philosophy on wine. Because, again, global warming... You know, all of these trends that we see going on sure. and, and everything's getting warmer. And to be able to make this type of wine uh, on the valley floor right. with this kind of balance is great. Because I don't feel like I'm being beat over the 
head with alcohol right and super ripe fruit i find that like you said earlier it just walks that night it's a fine line that you're walking here <laughs> absolutely you, you've dialed it in beautifully I appreciate it thank you well yeah. thank you well thank you very much for sharing us can you just remind our listeners the two wines that we just tasted so we just had the 2015 james o'neill merlot and the 2015 james o'neill cabernet sauvignon wow and thank you so much uh, for allowing me to visit this beautiful property again you're in Napa Valley, please make an effort to swing by my now dearest friends at <laughs> Sullivan Rutherford Estate. Tell them Scott sent you. Uh, hopefully they won't chew you away with a broom, <laughs> but it is definitely a beautiful, beautiful estate, and I encourage you to come and visit. And thank you again for being here with me today. Thank you. Follow me on Twitter at The Vine Guy, and don't forget to catch my Wine of the Week segments on Fridays on WTOP and WTOP.com. Sarah Beth Hensley produced this episode. The music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Until the next episode, remember, do good, drink well. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.